The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Good morning. If you are new or, or visiting, I am Pastor Bill. It is my joy to get to open God's Word with you today. And while this is not the only reason that I'm up here, let me take this opportunity to say happy birthday to Pastor Brian. But also, believe it or not, it's also his wife Jen's birthday today. And it doesn't stop there. They also have the same anniversary. So, they're just basically the same person. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter and chapter 4. And as a reminder, uh, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off the back table. I always encourage you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. Well, before we read, let's, let's open in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this time to, to come together. Thank you for, for Sarah and the rest of the worship team for, for leading us in these wonderful and, and rich songs. Thank you for giving us the ability to sing these songs of praise to you. I pray for our time this morning. I pray that this time in your word will be an encouragement to each of us. I pray that when we, we then take that encouragement and that it drives us closer to you, that it increases our confidence in, in sharing your word and, and who you are with those that we come in contact with. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you are able, would you please uh, stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Peter 4 and verses 1 through 6. God's word says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is God's word. Well, you may be seated. You know, throughout this letter, Peter has been saying to his readers and to us that as a Christian, we may have to suffer. We may have to sacrifice. You may have to bite your tongue and submit with regard to those who are in authority. Even times when you really don't want to. Peter is saying that, that as a Christian, our, our conduct matters. 
that how we act in everyday life, as well as in the face of adversity, it matters. That our good deeds or our good works may win others to Christ. That we shouldn't be afraid of suffering. That by trusting in Jesus and committing to him, we can have confidence in that what he has already done on the cross and that he will bring us to God. You know, sometimes as Christians, we tend to think that, that we shouldn't have to suffer. We can be prone to thinking that any suffering we ex- that we experience, well, that, that must just be God's judgment on us. You know, our, our bad day today must be because, well, we didn't read our Bible this morning. Our passage this morning assumes that, as Peter said previously in this letter, that we as believers in Jesus are exiles and sojourners. There is a price we pay for that status. Old friends will not be pleased with the new believer's new life. They will be startled, they will accuse, and they might graduate to physical violence. All right, now, in looking at our text in verse 1, it says again, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Forever has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. So our text this morning starts with the word since therefore, or your translation may just say therefore. And I'm sure you've all heard the the play on words used when studying scripture. When we see the word therefore, we ask the question, what's that therefore therefore? It's a good trick in in terms of studying, and and it generally points back to something that was just said. We can think of it as what was previously just said was some sort of of doctrine. And then there's this therefore, usually followed by some application. Kind of like saying, because of that, you should do this. Because of that, this this is true of you. Because of that, we can have this hope. This, therefore, is pointing back to what we previously read in chapter 3 and also in chapter 2. Remember, 1 Peter 2.12, it said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As well as 1 Peter 3.17 and 18. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Then we get into our passage this morning, chapter one of verse four, or chapter four and verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So Peter is saying, don't forget that. Remember that. But remember what? We remember that that Christ suffered. That he suffered and prevailed. That in Christ there is victory over death. But not just that. But we remember why Christ suffered. On one hand, Christ suffered for doing good, like we're charged to in 2.12. But he also suffered as the righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered by his death on the cross that he might bring us to God. So Peter continues by saying, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. 
With this, our minds may go back to what Peter said in chapter 3 and verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. You do it with gentleness and respect. So in chapter 3, Peter is saying, be prepared to make a defense. And now he is saying, arm yourselves. The word arm means to prepare, especially by equipping. It's frequently used in a military context in the process of, of preparation for battle. So Peter is saying in this letter, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Who is going to harm you for doing good? Generally, you will not be harmed for doing good. But some will. Some will want you to suffer. Some will speak evil against you. Then, even in that, do good. For it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Remember that Christ suffered, so you are not alone. Christ set an example of suffering, but also, Christ's suffering was not meaningless. It had purpose. But we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to arm ourselves. Arm ourselves or equip yourself. Be prepared. Paul talked about this in Ephesians 6 when he talked about the armor of God. But here, Peter is saying to arm ourselves with what? It says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The same way of thinking, the same purpose, the same understanding, the same attitude, the same mind as Christ. How do, you, how do you gain this way of thinking? I personally know of no other way to gain the mind of Christ than to immerse ourselves in his word. Studying the scriptures is the way by which we, we learn the mind of Christ because the scriptures reveal Christ. As Christians, we engage our minds. We think, we reason. We do this so that with, we do this with the word of God as our foundation. So we really should know what it says. It has been said that we are living in the most anti-intellectual period in the history of the Christian church. The application of the mind to, to search for understanding of the things of God is dismissed in some quarters and actually despised in others. Feeling is substituted for thinking. We are called to think to seek understanding of the word of God. And there's no other way to get to the mind of Christ. Do we immerse ourselves in the word of God? You know, we have encouraged various reading plans. And some of you have have used those and you found them helpful. And that's good. I know that for many of us, sitting down and, and reading the Bible, it can feel intimidating. It's a big book. We don't always understand it. I would encourage two different types of being in the Word. There can be time to just read large chunks of Scripture. And then there are times when we slow down and we study smaller sections of God's Word. My encouragement to you is that you have a regular habit of reading God's Word and also a regular habit of studying God's Word. 
The scriptures are our spectacles, to use John Calvin's phrase. The lenses through which we see God, the world, and ourselves rightly. We cannot truly know God, his will, or the way of salvation apart from the Bible. We need scripture. Again, I know that sometimes we look at our Bible and it's intimidating. But here's the thing. I, I was looking. So the average adult reads at a pace of somewhere between 220 and 350 words per minute. Now let's just say that you're below average. You're more like 150 words per minute. The average is 220 to 350, but just for this conversation, let's say that you read a slower pace of 150 words per minute. Well, the ESV Bible has 757, 439 words. Depending on the translation, it will have a different number. The NIV has fewer words, and the New American Standard has more, just for, for comparison. So if you started tomorrow, August 14th, and you just read 15 minutes a day, and you read every day starting tomorrow for 15, for 15 minutes at 150 words per minute, you would finish the entire Bible by the middle of, next, of July of next year. If you're someone who reads a little faster... Let's say you read 250 words per minute. And you could devote 30 minutes every day to reading. Just reading through your Bible. And you started tomorrow. You would finish just before Thanksgiving this year. Now you may challenge that and say, Well, but wait, I I don't understand a lot of the Bible. And I'm going to say, That's okay. Again, you can have a separate time that you spend studying. Maybe that's once a week or once a month. But I used the word earlier, immerse. I said I personally know of no other way to gain the mind of Christ than to immerse ourselves in his word. It's like learning a new language. The best way to learn it is to immerse yourself in it. You may not understand it all at first, but but you keep reading. And when you finish reading the Bible, you, you start over and you read it again. And over time you begin to understand more and more of what you read. And that, combined with time of study and sitting under godly preaching, you will be arming yourself. This is also a reason that I like the creeds and confessions. Here you have previous theologians who have already done the work to consider a right biblical understanding of things. We don't have to recreate the wheel. Maybe you've seen this image before. But the creeds and the confessions, they're not scripture. But they can help us to make sure that we're not, we're not getting off course. It's like using bumpers in the gutters at the bowling alley. And if you are a parent, use this way, this way of thinking with your kids. They don't need to understand everything that you are saying. They can sit in the service and, and hear preaching. And they don't have to understand everything. But they are immersing themselves. And over time... They learn more and more. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, that's that's great, Bill, but I I don't have time for that. I'm really busy. You know, that that works for you. You're you're a pastor. That's, That's your job. It just doesn't work for me. To which I would respond to say, our text says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
Peter is not saying, hey, you know, just so that you don't get bored. Let me, let me give you some, some busy work to do. He's not saying, hey, you know what would be fun? We could have a little competition. Or even, hey, you know what would be a good rule of thumb? Or a good habit just for the sake of doing it? No, there's some urgency in Peter's words. He is saying, you need to arm yourselves with this, th- with this way of thinking. Now go and do it. And as he continues in our passage, he'll get to some of the why. So this, this isn't just me talking. This is what scripture says. And I am saying, I don't know of a better way to gain the mind of Christ than to immerse ourselves in his word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Forever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh. Specifically, I believe Peter has in mind here suffering from following Christ. So a specific kind of suffering. Then it says, ceased from sin. But wait, I still sin. So now what? I don't believe that what, is, what this is saying is that we no longer sin. But that that is not who we are. That is not how we are known anymore. The Greek, word, the Greek verb translated ceased means to stop, it is done, or have finished with something. That means that when we identify with Christ and his sufferings, we, we break with sin globally. That is to say, we break the power of sin in our lives. We can't arm ourselves and have the same way of thinking of Christ and still hold on to sin, still feed sin, still keep sin as our pet. Those who suffer unjustly because of their faith in Christ have demonstrated that they are willing to be through with or or done with sin by choosing obedience, even if it means suffering. A willingness to suffer for the faith, for our convictions, is galvanizing. It is empowering to suffer for the Lord. A willingness to suffer proves our faith is real. That's what Peter is talking about. If we really understand what Christ did on the cross, if we really understand the suffering and the penalty that was paid, if we really understand that we are unrighteous, but the righteousness of Christ was imputed to us, that he might bring us to God, If we really understand the gospel, then our response is obedience and running from sin. Now again, we have to understand this in the right order. Pastor Brian talked over the past two weeks and said, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And Peter is not saying anything different here. Peter is saying that if your salvation is true, our response will be obedience to God. That we will no longer pursue the passions of the flesh, but instead the will of God. Arm yourselves with the willingness to suffer. Peter urges so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now Peter uses the word flesh. Sometimes the word here is used to, or the word is used to describe our, our physical bodies. Other times it's used to describe our, our fallen or corrupt nature. What Peter means here is that if if in our flesh we have ceased from sin, we should not live in sin. We should live in light of the change that the Spirit of God has worked in us. Putting the flesh to death 
and nurturing the new man, the man made by the Holy Spirit. Since we have been released from sin and the hold that it has upon our soul, we no longer should live the rest of our time in the flesh. That is a corruption for the passions of men. This chapter of Peter's epistle reads much like Ephesians 2, where Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses of sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When we come to Christ, we come by repentance. There's no other way. One does not cling to Christ as Savior until he first acknowledges that he is a sinner in need of a Savior. Even when we are converted, the Spirit removes the scales from our eyes and and changes the hardness of our hearts, we still know little about the corruption in which we once walked. Before conversion, we did not have a spiritual bone in our body. We had not the slightest inclination toward the things of God. We walked according to the course of this world until the Lord rescued us and delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. No longer for human passions or human desires. If God, by his great mercy, caused you to be born again, caused you to open your eyes to see Jesus as having died for you. And look, this may be easier for, some, for those who came to know Christ later in life, but you will no longer wish to do what you have been doing. As Charles Spurgeon said, you will not ask even for an hour's furlough or respite, but this will be your cry. No longer, no longer would I spend my time in the flesh to the lusts of men. With this, I encourage you to consider your life. Is there sin in your life that you continue to ignore, continue to think, ah, it's not that big of a deal? Many of you know that I'm a big admirer of John Owen. The Lord has used much of his work to be a huge encouragement in my life. John Owen famously said, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You see, to, to kill sin, to clear the woods of, the, of sin in our heart, is a critical part of the whole process of sanctification. And the more we experience that, the more assurance we will have that our desires are Godward. Our passions are for the will of God. This is what our text says. But for the will of God. This is more than just obedience for obedience's sake. This is more than just duty. God is not calling us to just do busy work. You will not encourage someone to break off his sin by merely, merely telling him that it is his duty. Or by warning him that he will be ruined unless he does so. In the same way, our not sinning is unlikely to win anyone to Christ. There are lots of unbelievers who do not do some of the forms of debauchery. Peter calling for more than just no longer for human passions of the passions of the flesh. Peter's calling but for the will of God. 
We turn from our sin. We turn from that sinful lifestyle, if that's what it was. And look, if that's all that, that we're being asked to do, is just turn from our sin, well, we would likely just turn to a different sin. But Peter says, turn from sin and follow the will of God. Turn from your sin and live a life following the Lord. Peter is saying that as a Christian, our identity is no longer that of a sinner. That is not who we are anymore. So we don't associate with that sin any longer. As one writer said, The point is not that believers who suffer have attained sinless perfection, as if they do not sin at all after suffering. When Peter what Peter emphasized was that those who commit themselves to suffer, those who willingly endure scorn and mockery for their faith, show that they have triumphed over sin. They have broken with sin because they have ceased to participate in the lawless activities of unbelievers and endured the criticism that have come from such a decision. The commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life, a life that is not yet perfect, but remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers in the Greco-Roman world. We can recognize that Obedience to God may lead to unpleasant consequences. This is sometimes overlooked by those who understand following Christ is only the path to blessing and even to health and wealth in the heretical prosperity gospel. Peter's readers face the choice of either taking the path of least resistance, going along with the values, norms, and practices acceptable and expected by their society, or Obeying God and suffering the consequences of criticism and condemnation by unbelieving family and friends. Their willingness to suffer this way therefore demonstrates that they have resolved to be through with sin. Their willingness to suffer for Christ, to suffer for being a Christian, says, I don't want to be a part of that sinful life anymore. I don't want to be identified by that life. We, too, must cease from sin by being so willing to do God's will that we would rather suffer at the hands of the civil authority in society than disobey his will in order to avoid pain. This doesn't mean that we never sin. Oh, we still sin, but we don't want to. We don't want to be associated with or identified with that sin lifestyle. As Christians, instead of embracing sin and diving deeper, we confess our wrong desires and we work to flee from them. This can be very relevant in our current time, in our current society. We are told, or we are lied to, rather, that, and told that certain abominations, certain forms of debauchery, are not only to be accepted, but celebrated. And sometimes... And we'll get some more of this, but sometimes they're surprised when we don't support them. When we don't attend that wedding. When we don't use those pronouns. When we don't indulge in their parties. Sometimes it's family members who are the ones that are surprised. And they threaten to cut off relationships. And they say that you don't love them if you don't support them. I believe part of Peter's charge here is to challenge us to ask, are we following human passions or the will of God? 
Verse 3 says, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Regarding verse 3, R.C. Sproul said this, Augustine spent the early years of his life following the pattern that Peter describes here. Then one day, he was in a garden where children were playing, and playing a game that contained the refrain, which means, pick up and read. With those words ringing in his ears, he picked up the Bible, and his eyes fell upon this passage. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. At that moment, R.C. Sproul said, Augustine's heart was stricken because he recognized himself in the text he was reading. He said, in essence, I have made every provision I could to fulfill the lusts of my flesh. I need to, to change my clothes. Grant God that he would dress me in the clothes of Christ, that I may no longer make provision for the lusts of the flesh. And Peter says the same thing. We know the bankruptcy of our former way of life. We ought to spend our time for the will of God. We spent enough time doing the will of pagans when we walked like they walked. Lewdness, lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Peter tells us that the, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The time that is past suffices. In other words, however much time you spent in a life of sin before you were a believer, maybe that's decades or a very short while, well, that time was enough. You're done now. And the term Gentiles here refers to non-believers, and it's not one's ethnicity. Peter's focus is not Jew and Gentile, but believer and unbeliever. And in verse 3, Peter essentially says that once we have trusted Christ, we can no longer behave as we once did. Believers simply cannot engage in the ungodliness described in verses 3 through 4. We had enough of that in the past. Now that we are in Christ, we must live accordingly. Last week in the section that Pastor Brian is in in Acts, he said regarding the question of do Gentiles need to become Jews, and Pastor Brian said... You can be a Gentile Christian, you just can't be a pagan Christian. That's very similar to Peter's point here. To be a follower in Jesus, those acts, presumably, that they once participated in, it's no longer who they are. So they are not to be a part of these. All who are in Christ will certainly turn from past sins, though never perfectly in this life. I am looking unto Jesus and trusting myself entirely with him to save me. And I feel in my heart that he has saved me. Now I cannot live as I once lived. I cannot sin as I once sinned. I must be done with sin if I have indeed trusted in Christ. You cannot undo anything that is done. Your past life will always stand. If you are a believer in Jesus, the sin of your past life is forgiven. 
There is no man whom God has converted by his grace who wishes that he had spent more of his life in sin. No doubt if he is, it has given him knowledge of the world, but it's knowledge of the world that those who have it would be very happy to get rid of it. I see this play out this way sometimes. Sometimes. You decide if this describes you or not. But for some who profess to be a Christian, you can live a life that actually communicates a desire to look as much like the world as possible, just without sinning. Like if this is where sin is, we're perfectly content to just live right here. You want to look as much like the world, so much like the world that the untrained eye may not even be able to notice the difference. Yet in verse 4, it says that they are surprised that you do not join. They malign you. They, they call you names. You are closed-minded. You are a bigot. You are judgmental. You are unsafe. You must not really love. Peter is describing a refrain that implies that you will stand out for not being a part of this. We no longer pursue human passions, for we live a life for the will of God. To honor God, to please Him, not man. That might look like a few different things. It might look like not living a certain lifestyle. It might look like not following the culture in terms of sexuality and gender. Now, if you are a people pleaser, this may be especially hard for you. If you are prone to fear over what others think of you, well, this can be a challenging temptation. Because let's be honest, none of us want to be thought of as weird. But that is especially so if you struggle with people-pleasing or a fear of man. In his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, Ed Welch says, We fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. These three reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger, that is, more powerful and significant than God. And out of the fear that creates in us, we give other people the power and the right to tell us what to feel, think, and do. He then says, Jesus did not die to increase our self-esteem, Rather, Jesus died to bring glory to the Father by redeeming people from the curse of sin. So part of this means recognizing our own weaknesses and temptations and guarding against them. Again, verse 4 reads, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter might have added this at this point from Matthew. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter said they are surprised when you do not join them. What a strange world this is. It speaks evil of men because they will not do evil. Sometimes this surprise comes because, well, you used to do these things, and now you don't. But then other times, and this feels very true today, 
They are so convinced that their debauchery is a good thing that you are just weird that you don't do the same thing. And so they malign you or they revile you. For the very thing in which they ought to speak well of you, men will speak evil of you. If you will not drink as they do, if you will not follow after sinful pleasures as they do, if you will not sing their songs or use their language, then straight away they will hate you and call you a hypocrite. And it's a pity that if we're not willing to go into sin as they do, they should, for that reason, speak ill of us. Yet this is what we must expect. Surprise evokes misunderstanding, and misunderstanding evokes a sense of being judged. And when the world feels that it has been judged by your way of life, those who are, who are of it will condemn you as a life-hater. They will malign you. I mean, take a look at, at the progression of behavior embedded in verse 4. It starts with surprise and then gives way to the word malign. As Christians, we are all too often ridiculed when we do not agree with our culture's permissive attitude towards sexuality and substance abuse or with the embrace of relativity and disrespect for authority figures. Always stand firm and seek Christian fellowship so that you may live so that you may not live according to the sins of your past. But I also think this begs the question. Do they see you as different? Oh, maybe that list that, that Peter lists, oh, you're good there. But what about other areas? What about grumbling and complaining about your job? Or about your spouse? Or about your kids? About the government? About inflation or taxes? What about selfishness? What about anger? What about the way you treat your parents or your siblings? What about the pride that you have that that comes out when you're around people that you think you're better than? In my opinion, what should scare us about this passage is not that they will think that we are weird or strange, but that they will see no difference in us at all. We remember what Peter said in chapter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And the verses 5 and 6 say, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Sometimes we can think that those around us who are living in sin are are getting away with it. Yet Peter is saying here, they won't. They will give an account one day. The way to be delivered from sin, the way to heaven, is to simply trust in Jesus. God has sent him forth to be a a propitiation for sin. Propitiation. Just think of a sponge. It, It absorbs. Christ absorbs our sin. And everyone who believes in Jesus, it is done. The point is that people who malign Christians will have to give an account to God for their actions. In one sense, you and I do not need to judge the world. It already stands condemned. So we entrust ourselves to God. And we wait for Jesus to set all things straight. 
And verse 6 begins with, for this is why. That is because judgment is coming. The gospel was preached widely, even to those who are now dead. That is people who have died since they heard the gospel while they still lived. So what we need to remember is that the early church had many questions about their family members or, or friends who had died after coming to faith in Christ. They wondered what happened to believers after death. There was a concern for those who had already undergone the penalty of death. Peter wants to reassure his readers here with news that although believers are judged in the flesh the way people are, they need not worry about their future with God. He says they will still live in the spirit the way that God does. We have nothing to fear in Christ. We have nothing to fear in embracing suffering in this life. Peter wants us to grasp this as part of our calling. To do so, Peter is saying in this section that we need to make, I think, three gospel commitments. Become a person of resolve. Live for the will of God. And leave human passions behind. While at the same time, we must be ready to incur two costs. The surprise of those with whom we once lived in sin and the inevitable maligning and slander that is sure to follow. And all of this, though, Peter reassures us of one encouraging reminder. There will be a final accounting for everyone. As those who are in Christ, we shall live on and in the Spirit forever. Every day we are judged by people. Sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. Sometimes graciously, sometimes without grace. Yet any judgment made about us in this world, good or bad, ultimately does not count because it is a judgment made in the flesh. The only judgment that counts is the judgment of God. So we are to live not according to the judgment of people, but according to the judgment of God in the Spirit. When Peter says that those who suffer in the flesh have ceased from sin, again, he is not teaching that sinless perfection is possible in this life. Until we are glorified, we will still sin. But Christ died. Now, as we said last time, Paul says in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I want to encourage you this morning to make every effort to arm yourself with Christ's manner of thinking so that you would be willing to suffer rather than do evil. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word that can both encourage us and convict us at the same time. Father, I, I don't know the struggles of each person in this room. But I pray that any, any sins that we are not killing, any sins that we maybe don't even recognize as sin, any 
sin that we don't think we have the strength to fight. That you would give us that strength and help us to trust you as we work to, to pluck that sin out of our lives. Help us to truly embrace our calling to suffer in Christ. May we receive it with open arms. We know that everything we bear for you in this life will be nothing to compare with the glory we will share we will share in with you in heaven. To you be the glory. Amen.